happy to be here this morning? I am. Sun was shining outside this morning. It's a beautiful day outside. What a better time to come together and worship and praise God and open His Word together. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. And I want to get right into our message. I'm excited about what we've got to talk about today. And I kind of want to get right into that with you. We're going to continue our study this morning looking at the transformative power of Christ. We're going to continue to study and see how Christ's authority gives him the right to control everything in life, in earth, everything that goes on. We're going to continue to study that authority. We saw in Matthew chapter 8 over the last several weeks the miracles that Jesus has been doing. We've seen these miracles that demonstrate his authority over different things. A few weeks ago we looked at the miracle that Jesus performed of healing the leper of his leprosy. And we saw his authority there over disease, over sickness. And we saw how he was able to heal the centurion's servant with just a word. Just a word he said and he was healed. We saw Jesus' authority over the natural in the story a couple of weeks ago where they were passing over the sea on the Sea of Galilee and the storm arose on the sea and the disciples, fearing for their life, petitioned Jesus to save them from this storm that's about to swamp their boat. And he rises and he comes up and he He rebukes the wind and the sea and they calm down, demonstrating his authority over the natural. And then last week we saw in the story of the Gadarene demoniacs how he was able to cast out the demons and demonstrate his authority over the supernatural as well. And this morning we have before us another story here of Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, Jesus' miracles. We're going to see a man today who is in dire need of life transformation. We're going to see this morning a man who is dealing with a disease. He's dealing with a sickness that has kept him in bonds for most of his life. He's in a, in a situation where he doesn't have any hope of resolution. He doesn't have any hope of getting out of this condition that he's in. He's in a situation where he has nowhere left to turn, and he's beginning to lose all hope until he hears about Jesus. And when Jesus came to his town, he enlisted the help of some friends to take him to Jesus. And once he had that encounter with the Lord, his life was never the same again. He was completely changed, forever changed, and he would never be the same man that he was before. And Jesus said just a few words to him that changed his condition, that resolved the problem that he had had for all of his life. He said to him, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He forgave the man of his sin dealing with the underlying condition that he had. We've explored these miracles of Jesus for the last several weeks. We've seen the authority of Jesus. We saw how he had authority over disease, distress, and demons. And now today we're going to see how Jesus has the authority over the depravity that underlies all of human suffering. That depravity that we know is sin. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to take a look at this passage. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning, beginning a new chapter, but still continuing on to look at these miracles that Jesus is performing We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given authority to men. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful day today. We thank you for this opportunity to come together in your house this morning in praise and worship of you. And God, now as we turn toward the time of opening your word and studying together, I just pray that you will reveal the truths that you would have for us to understand today. God, I just pray that the truth of your message comes through the words that I speak today and that these folks hear what it is, the truth that you want to speak into their lives today. God, we just pray that your Lord of this day guide our discussion, guide our message today and be with us and move freely among us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, for most of us who are familiar with this story, and in fact, I think in most of your Bibles, this story is actually entitled, Jesus Heals a Paralytic. That's the name of the miracle that's done here. But in my opinion, I believe that this story has been titled incorrectly, because that title puts a focus on the physical healing that was given to a man with paralysis. And while that is certainly part of the story that we're going to look at today, The underlying issue, the real issue, is that Jesus has changed the underlying condition of this man. He has forgiven his sin, thereby changing that condition within inside him that keeps him from living the life that God intended for him. This story really ought to be entitled, I believe, Jesus Saves a Sinner. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to try and understand today why this act of Jesus' forgiveness for this man is so important in his life why it fundamentally changed who this man was, how it did so, and how we can apply that truth in our own life. And I want to be careful this morning because I think a lot of us have the idea when we came in here this morning, but I'm already saved. I'm already a Christian. I've already dealt with my sin condition. Does this really apply to me? And in fact, it does. And I would encourage you to pay attention and take some notes here and take inventory of your own life and see this truth, that the transformed life, living the transformed life, begins Yeah, begins with our forgiveness. It doesn't end there. A lot of us think that once we have come to a place where we've placed our faith and trust in Christ, that it's all done, it's over with, that we're finished. But that's not really the case. The way the Bible speaks about forgiveness, it speaks about it in terms of it being the beginning of something. It's the new birth. It's the beginning of a new life in Christ. It's a beginning of a new way to live. And we're going to see how that plays itself out in this story with the paralytic today. And we're going to see what we can learn from that that we can apply to our own lives. So with the background and the understanding that we want to and we need to experience an authentic life transformation, every one of us, no matter where we are in life at any time, there are several points here I want to look at with you this morning. The first is that we need to recognize Christ's power. We're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. We're going to see this story here. We're going to see how it's to Christ that we must turn if we want to see life transformation occur in our own lives. That we can't do it on our own. That there's no one else who can help us but Jesus. And that's where we have to turn. The story begins in verse 1 this morning. It says, in getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. We see here in this story that Jesus is now returning back across the Sea of Galilee, back across the lake to his hometown. Last week we saw the story of the Gadarene demoniacs and we saw how Jesus had come into that town and had cast out the demons from two men who were living near the tombs. And that those demons had left those men and they had then went and indwelled a herd of swine who were grazing nearby. And those swine promptly ran down the hill and into the sea and were drowned. And do you remember the reaction of the townspeople who were there that day? They more or less came out to Jesus after this occurred and said, uh, you know, why don't you just go on back to where you came from? We don't really want that activity here in our town. We were doing just fine. We were perfectly comfortable where we were before you showed up. 
And Jesus respected their, their, their call. He left. And that's where our story today picks up. He says, in getting into a boat, he returns to the place from which he came. He returns to the city of Capernaum. And as we're going to see this morning, Mark records this story in his gospel as well. He gives a parallel account. So we're going to jump back and forth a little bit between these two accounts. Mark gives us a little bit more detail to this story than does Matthew. And we're going to try and fill in some of the blanks and fill in a little bit of the context in the story as we go through here this morning. So if you look at Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark, Mac, Mark chapter 2, which is on your screen here, we get a few more details of what's going on. Verse 3 says, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And I want to take just a minute and kind of set the scene, set the stage here for you, so to speak, so that we can see what the context is and what, what's going on at this time. There's several different groups of people here who are involved. First, we have Jesus. We have the paralyzed man. We have the four friends that Mark told us about that brought the man on his mat or on his bed to encounter Jesus. We also have the crowds who it says are pressing in on Jesus. They, they are, have surrounded the house in which Jesus, Jesus is staying and where Jesus is teaching. And he's proclaiming the word of these people and the crowds have gathered. Why have they done this? They've done this because they've heard that Jesus is back in town and they're familiar with the, the healings and the miracles that he's done. They'd heard about all the different people who were healed. They knew that he was casting out demons. And many people were coming to hear him teach and to receive his healing. It says these men came bringing the paralytic and they were unable to get to Jesus because of the crowds. So there was a large crowd gathered here pressing in on clogging the house so that they couldn't even get to the entryway. And part of the crowd that was there that day we want to see were the scribes and Pharisees. This group was part of this crowd and they followed Jesus around listening to his teaching and taking notes about what he was doing because they were opposed to the teaching that he was doing. So we've got those five different groups here that are involved in the story today, and they're all kind of pressed into this one house where Jesus is preaching and teaching the word. And these men come, and they bring their friend, they bring this paralytic, and they get to the house, and they can't get in. The doorway's clogged, it's blocked, there's no way in, but they don't give up. They don't give up in bringing their friend to Jesus. They go up on the roof, and they begin to remove some of the tiles that cover the roof. And they make a hole in the roof, and they lower their friend down through that hole, down into the presence of Jesus. And that's where our story picks up. That's where we're going to go with this the rest of this morning. And behold, pay attention here, behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Why did they come to Jesus? Well, these people too had heard of the healings that Jesus was doing. And making a play for their friend, they load him up on his mat, on his bed, and they take him to Jesus hoping that they will encounter him and that he will be healed by Jesus. They've recognized the power of this man who's been going all about their land and been doing healing and been doing miracles. And they bring their friend hoping to get that same type of healing for him today. They've recognized the power of Christ and they bring him into his presence. And Jesus begins an interaction here with this man that is a little bit surprising. Most of the stories we've seen so far involve the, the Jesus healing people's different issues. People come with an issue, the leper Peter's mother-in-law, all these different people had an issue, and Jesus dealt with their physical condition. But we see in this passage here that Jesus is now going to begin to deal with not the physical condition, but rather the spiritual. And Jesus always starts there with us. He starts with the spiritual when he's going to give us healing. We also want to see here that we have to recognize the power of Christ in our own life. Just as this man saw no hope, saw no opportunity for a healing to occur in his own life, we have to recognize that there's not any way for us to be healed in our own lives either. 
As sinful people, we're all fallen, we're all lost, we're all separated from God. We have to come to the point in our life where we recognize that Christ is the only one who can save us. Christ is the only one who can transform us. That's what this man has seen here. He has seen that Jesus is his only hope if he can just make it to Jesus. And it's an interesting commentary, I think, on the intercession of friends uh, for Jesus as well here. We see that the four men brought the paralytic to Jesus here. They brought him as far as they could. They brought him to the feet of Jesus and laid him there at the feet of Jesus. And I think many of us today are in a similar situation where we have friends that we're praying for, that we're interceding for, and we're doing everything we can do to bring our friend to the feet of Jesus and lay him there. And that's all that we can really do. And from that point on, it has to be the faith of that person, of that paralytic, of that sick person whose, whose faith carries them the rest of the way through. We see here next that not only do we need to recognize Christ's power, but we have to receive Christ's forgiveness as well. Verse 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. An interesting interchange here that goes on. We're expecting a physical healing, but that's not what the man gets. Instead, Jesus says to take heart and be assured because your sins have been forgiven here. There's three different things, three different aspects of this forgiveness that I think we want to take a look at here and understand this morning. Number one, we have to see in this passage that forgiveness is dependent on faith. That's the beginning of the verse. And when Jesus saw their faith, he says. Now that faith that he's talking about is the faith of all these people involved here. There is a plural word. It's indicating he's looking or seeing or perceiving the faith of all of these people that are involved. Not only of the man, the paralytic himself, but that of his friends. The faith of his friends had brought this man as far as it could. Their faith drove them to bring him to Jesus and lay him at the feet of Jesus. That's as far as their faith would go. Now it was going to be up to him. And his faith that Jesus saw brought him the rest of the way. It got him, it gained him forgiveness from Jesus. Jesus saw that this man had faith, that he believed in him, that he believed he was the only hope that he had. He saw that as faith and he gave the man what he really needed, which was forgiveness of his sin. Rather than deal with his physical condition first, he began to deal with his spiritual condition. It's important that we understand here in this passage as well that not only are we talking about belief here, we're not talking about a simple belief that God exists or that God has power or that God is supernatural. We're talking about the word faith. Faith means trust. It means complete belief in, complete trust in. When Jesus saw their complete trust, their complete belief, then he was motivated to act. Then he was motivated to uh, forgive the man's sin. It's not enough just to believe in a God who exists. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believe. Even Satan believes in God. He knows he's out there and he knows that he has power and he knows there's a judgment coming for him. So it's not just a simple belief that brings about forgiveness. But rather it's a faith and a trust. And that's what this man exhibited. This is what Jesus saw in the paralytic man on this day. And it gained him the forgiveness he was looking for. I have to believe that Jesus can transform my life as well. I can't simply believe that there's a God out there somewhere, maybe even a good God, who's carrying the cosmic scales of justice here and is weighing my good and my bad, but rather a God who is out there looking to save me, to transform me, to forgive me of my sin. But there's only one way I can do that, and that's through Jesus. I have to understand that he is the only way. I have to put my complete faith and trust in him to be able to change my condition to be able to transform my life. That is what true faith is, and that's the true faith we see exhibited in this passage here. 
We also see that my forgiveness is determined by Jesus. Not only is it dependent on my faith, but it's determined by Jesus. The passage says that he, Jesus, said to the paralytic. Jesus is the one speaking here. Jesus is the one who's offering forgiveness here in this passage. Jesus is the one who does the forgiving. His response is to heal spiritually rather than physically. We're all expecting this physical healing, but what we see is a spiritual healing. There's no way... No other place that I can turn for healing other than to Jesus. And any time I come to Jesus in recognition of who he is, how he's able to transform my life, I have to recognize that it's not on my works. It's only by his grace. It's only by his decision, by his word, by his forgiveness that I can be transformed. Too often I think you and I want to put faith in ourselves, put faith in our works to get us to salvation or to get our sins forgiven. It's not enough that I forgive myself. It's not enough that the people I've wronged forgive me. Jesus has to be the one to forgive me. Jesus, the arbiter of forgiveness. He determines where my faith is, and he determines my forgiveness. We also want to see here that forgiveness is distinguished by assurance. Jesus looks at the man and he says, take heart. Take heart. What does that that mean? That phrase more or less means to be confident. Have assurance of. Be assured recognize your changed condition. Jesus says, be confident, be assured that your sins have been forgiven. Why is that? Why does he tell him that? Because this is a condition that has already come to pass. It's done. It's complete. When Jesus spoke the words, the man had been forgiven. His life has now forever changed. It won't go back to what it was. It's something new and completely different. Jesus wants this man to rest assured in that, to recognize that his life is something different than it has been to this point. This assurance of forgiveness is going to allow this man to operate and conduct his life in a different way than he has before. It's going to give him assurance to make decisions in his life, to act differently, to live the transformed life that Jesus has now given to him. You know, I think about this a lot as I was studying through this passage the last couple of weeks, and I'm thinking this assurance, this idea of assurance, what what does that really profit me? And I got to thinking about how it's kind of the difference between being employed and being unemployed. If you've ever experienced unemployment before, it kind of puts you in a position where there's no assurance. You don't know what decisions you can make. You don't know what things you can do. You don't know what things you can purchase because you're unemployed. You don't have a steady stream of income. There's no money coming in. But when one is employed and there's a steady income coming, it allows me to make decisions in my life from an assured position. If I'm employed and I have money coming in, I can buy a house or I can rent an apartment. If I have a steady income, I can buy a car. I can purchase food. I can make decisions regarding my health care and all of the things that are involved with having a steady income. When I have that job, when I have that income, I'm assured that I can make these decisions and make these choices in my life. That's what Jesus is communicating to the man in the story here. He says, I want you to be assured and recognize that from this position, you're now freed to make the decisions in your life that you need to make. You can operate from a sense of security now. Your sin has been forgiven. You've been freed from that bondage of your sin. You can now make the decisions you need to make and live your life in the way that you need to live it. I, too, have to come to that recognition in my own life. I have to understand that when Jesus forgave me, I'm something different now. I've been transformed by the power of Jesus. I'm not the same man that I was before. I have to live my life differently. And when Jesus forgives me, I have to recognize that that is a permanent situation. There's no going back on that. Jesus has transformed me into something completely new. That now frees me to live my life for him. 
We'll explore a little later just what that means, living for him, and what the transformed life is about. But it's important that we have that bedrock understanding that that forgiveness has now transformed me into something that I wasn't before. I have to first deal with my sin condition. I have to first receive that forgiveness from Christ. I have to first have that reconciled, and then I can move on to live that transformed life that he has now given me. That brings us to our next point here. If I want to experience authentic life transformation, I need to respect Christ's authority. There's going to be a a, a dialogue that opens up now. There's going to be a contrast between two groups of people here in the passage. We've seen so far, basically, it's just been the interaction of Jesus with the paralytic. That's all the interaction we've seen. Now we're going to get the interjection of the scribes. They're going to begin to contribute their opinion to what's going on here. They're inside this crowd. They're observing what's going on. They're seeing the things that are going on here today. And they begin to think to themselves, they begin to say to themselves some very bad things about Jesus. And we're going to pick up the story there. In verse 3, it says, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. And Mark's account, again, is just a little bit clearer, adds a couple of more details. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And we see here the reason for their disputation here. They're disputing this authority of Jesus here. They don't believe that he's actually done anything to this man. It doesn't take anything to say something, does it? I mean, they can't see it. It's invisible. They don't know if the man's sins have been forgiven or not. And they begin to to say to themselves that he didn't really do this. He's committing blasphemy. Blasphemy, we understand in the context of the New Testament, means to revile or assault the character of God. And from the opinion of these scribes and Pharisees that were present, that's what Jesus was doing here. They saw him as a man, and this man was now putting himself in the position of God by offering to forgive sins. They considered that blasphemy, and they begin to say to themselves, he's blaspheming. And they're beginning to take notes and beginning to remember the things that he's doing. And these things will come up later on uh, in the book of Matthew, as we'll see. But they're disputing the authority of Jesus here. And Jesus perceives what it is that they're saying to themselves. They don't say it out loud. They didn't say it directly to his face, but rather they're saying it in their heart. They're thinking it in their mind. And Jesus perceives the things that are going on and the things that they're thinking here. And he replies to him by declaring his authority to him. In verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus here declares his authority to forgive sin. He says, I am who I am. I've I've declared this man's sins forgiven, and now I'm going to demonstrate that to you. I'm going to demonstrate to you that I have the authority to forgive his sins. I have the authority to do the invisible, that which you cannot see, by doing the visible. I will now heal this man's paralysis. I'm going to call on him to rise and walk, and you will see for your very eyes that I do have the authority of claiming to be God, of claiming to be able to forgive sins here. Jesus declares his intent to verify his authority here in this passage. He says, I'm going to show you for a fact that I do have the authority to do this. And we see in the end of verse 6 that he does just that. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He tells the paralytic, you've been forgiven of your sins first. Be assured of that. Rest assured that you've been forgiven of your sins. You're operating from a new condition, a new position. Now I want you to rise up and walk and go home. Mark's passage renders this a little bit differently. It says that he rose and he immediately picked up his bed and went home. There was no delay here. When Jesus heals, healing is always complete, is always immediate. It happened right away. 
He demonstrates his authority here. He delivers on his declaration of his authority to forgive sin here by demonstrating it to them through the healing of this man's paralysis. And this comes back to our thought that we had earlier in the beginning. Jesus first deals with our spiritual condition. And once that condition has been dealt with, then he moves on to working out the physical conditions in our life, whatever they may be. When you become transformed by Jesus, when your sin is forgiven, that tends to have reverberations throughout all of your life. You see all kinds of different things in your life become affected by this changed condition. This man is experiencing something very similar here. Jesus has dealt with his spiritual condition, healed his sin, and now he heals his physical condition, his disease. And for many of us, I think it's the same way. When we come to faith and trust in Christ, not everything changes immediately. Our condition changes, who we are changes, but the situations and the events and the conditions in our life don't change immediately, but they do in time. Once Christ has dealt with that sin condition in our hearts and has forgiven our sin, then things begin to change in the other areas of our life. That change within us begins to affect how we do everything. It begins to affect how we relate to people, to spouses, to family members, to friends and coworkers. It begins to affect the way we do business, the way we work at our jobs. It begins to affect everything that we do in life. And that change comes about because of our changed sin condition. Once we've been forgiven, we're something new and something different. We've experienced a life transformation. This man in this story, this paralytic, has experienced a life transformation. His sin has been forgiven. His paralysis has been dealt with. Jesus has now delivered on his declaration of authority here. Today, we see Jesus declaring his authority from his word, from the Bible, from right here. This is where Jesus declares his word to us today. We don't have him walking around here today as they did at the time in this story took place. Jesus walked around the land of, of Israel and he declared his authority everywhere he went and he was demonstrating that authority by the miracles that he did. But today for you and I, he declares that authority from this word. And he demonstrates his authority over sin and he demonstrates his power to, for forgiveness in Christ followers. He demonstrates that through you. If you have become a Christ follower, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a walking testimony to the authority of Jesus Christ over sin in your life. And there are still people who live today who doubt that authority of Jesus. They walk around and they look at you as a Christ follower and they say that you're pretending or that you're imitating or you're acting like something that you're not. They look at the activity of Christ in your life and they dismiss it, just like these scribes and Pharisees have done in this story. They haven't respected the authority of Jesus and the healing that he's brought about in your life. Now, I've had the opportunity to talk with a number of you who are here today, and I've, I've had the privilege of hearing the testimonies of several of you. And I know that there are changed people in this room here today. There are people in here who are not the same person that they were before. I'm that same way as well. I still remember the day that I got saved. I remember how I passed from death into life, how I changed from what I was to who I am today. And listening to your testimonies over the last months and years, I know that you too have been changed. And you are a walking testimony to the authority of Christ, that he has changed you. That you are something new and something different. But there are still those who are out there who doubt. They refuse to respect the authority of Christ and his ability to forgive your sin. By their own will, they are rejecting it. It's important for us to see here that we have to respect the authority of Christ. He is the one who forgives our sin. We have a responsibility to him, the one who has set us free from that bondage, who has set us free from our sin. We now have a debt of gratitude to him. We have something that we owe him, and that is our obedience. We need to respect his authority, but we also need to respond to his command. 
Christ has left a number of commands for each and every one of us in our lives. And we are, have a duty and a responsibility to obey those. In our story today, we see here that when Jesus gave the command to the paralytic to rise, to take up his bed and go home, verse 7 records, and he rose and he went. That's the extent of it. That's what it says. Jesus gave the command and the man responded. He said, get up and go home, take your bed with you. He got up and went. He got up immediately and walked out before them all. All of the crowd that was gathered there that day, everyone who was there was able to see this healing that Jesus had done. They were able to see his authority demonstrated on that day. He responded immediately. It says he rose immediately, he picked up his bed, and he went out before them all. This, this healing, this transformation was not concealed. It was not hidden from anyone. Everyone there was able to see it. They were able to see the miraculous transformation that occurred. You as a Christ follower had that same transformation. And the people in your life, the people whom you interact with, should see that same transformation in your life. You need to be one who responds to Christ's command. Remember, there's two commands in this passage here. Christ said, first, rest assured, take heart, be sure your sins have been forgiven. That's a command. It's in the imperative voice. And he also tells him to rise, take up his bed, and go home. You've been healed. That's a command as well. He's given this man two commands, and he's supposed to respond and live his life accordingly to these two separate commands. The one is just as valid as the other. Even though one may be invisible and the other visible, they're both equally valid. A transformation has occurred, and now Christ has the authority over this man as well, and we are called to respond to that. We have to respond to the commands. You know, I remember as a kid, it was always my responsibility to mow the yard. And about once a week, my dad would come around and he'd say, hey, it's time to get that yard mowed. And I always remember not having any doubt about what it is that my dad was communicating to me with that statement. He meant, hey, I better start moving toward the yard. It meant I needed to get it done now. I need to get it done immediately. And he didn't mean for me to go out and do it partway either. He was talking about a complete job. That's the same idea that Jesus has here in this passage. When Jesus gives us a command... He expects us to respond immediately. He expects us to start moving that direction. Get up and go. We're not to sit around and think about it and debate about it and hem-haw around, but we're to get up and start moving toward fulfilling that command that he's given us in our life. And there shouldn't be any doubt about what he's commanding us either. The man in the story, the paralytic, he didn't have any doubt who was speaking. He didn't have any doubt who he was speaking to, and he didn't have any doubt about what he was supposed to do. Christ was crystal clear. This man understood it. You and I should be the same way today. We should be crystal clear about the commands of Christ. He's left them for us here in his word. We have these available to us. They're printed in here. You can read it any day of your life, and he will confirm in your heart that these are true. We have a responsibility to respond to those commands in the same way that the paralytic did. Get up and go. When Christ gives that command, we need to get up and go. Next, I want to see here, to experience true and authentic life transformation, we need to revere Christ's sovereignty. Verse 8 here, he says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. A couple of different things here I want to see in this verse. How do I revere Christ's sovereignty? How do I live in, in such a way? The answer to that is, first, I have to display a reverential fear of Christ. Remember, the crowds are gathered around this house. They're gathered around what's going on here today. They see all of these things that are going on, the interaction between Jesus and the paralytic, and the scribes, they've witnessed all the conversations, they've seen the miracle that has occurred, and it says they were afraid. Now the word afraid in this, in this passage and in this context has the sense of being awestruck. 
they were in awe of what had just happened. They've seen everything that's gone on this day, and they react to it with reverential fear. They know that God has done something here today. It's not every day that you go out and you see a man who's been paralyzed for some time get up, take up his bed, and walk. They know that God has been involved in what has occurred today, and they're in awe of that. They're reverencing Christ for the activity that he's brought about that day. They see what's gone on. There's not any doubt in their minds that God is the one who's responsible for this transformation. The question becomes for us, are we still living like that? Do we still live in awe of the activity that God has carried out in our lives or in the lives of others, in the lives of our friends and relatives and other church members? Do you remember what it was like the day you got saved? Do you remember being in awe yourself of what God had done in your life, how he had transformed you from what you were into what you are today? The problem is that I think a lot of us have lost that sense of awe. We've lost that sense of reverential fear. The fact that Christ can transform lives. He can transform me and he can transform you. We need to be living our lives in such a way each and every day that we still reverence him. That we recognize his power. That we live in awe of what it is that he's done in our life each and every day. Secondly, we need to remember we need to deliver glory to God. If you look at the end of verse 8 there, it says that not only were they afraid, but they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They gave the glory to God, to where it was due. They knew that God was the one who was responsible for everything that had occurred that day. They knew that it was not something that a man can do, and they offered glory to God because they had seen God working through this man, Jesus, right there in their very midst. They recognized that activity as that of being of God, and they glorified him for it. They recognized that what he had done there was not capable just by a man. It wasn't a show. It wasn't an imitation. There was no magic involved here, but it was simply the activity of God. And they glorified him for what he had done. We too need to have that type of attitude in our own lives. We need to remember that God is the one who has wrought out transformation. God is the one who is still working out his will and plan in our lives and in our world each and every day. Just because it may have been some time since we were saved, since we were transformed, or since we've seen the activity of God, it doesn't mean that he's not still working. It's still going on all around you whether you recognize it or not. And when we encounter that, when we see that activity, we have a responsibility to give God glory for it. That's why we've gathered here today. We're here to give glory to God for all that he's done and all of our people here today. We want to give glory to him for who he is, how he's working out his plan and will in our time and in our world, how he's drawing people unto him, how he's transforming lives, how he's making people different. He's dealing with their sin and transforming them into something that they weren't before. He's in the process of freeing people from the bondage that they live in. He's dealing with their sin condition. And he, and he alone, is owed the glory for that. We have to give God the glory for that. So then where does that leave us? We've talked through a lot of stuff here fairly quickly this morning, through a lot of information. We've taken a little bit different look at this story than what we normally understand it to be. So we have some questions. Am I living the transformed life? Have I recognized Christ's power to transform me? Do I know that Jesus is the only way? Have I recognized that this life that I'm living, the way that I'm living it, is not gaining me anything? That I'm sick, I'm in a broken condition, I'm essentially diseased, I'm dead, I'm lost, I'm separated from God. And have I recognized that Jesus is the one to whom I need to turn for healing? He's the only way. I have to turn to him. Have I received Christ's forgiveness of my sin? That's the underlying condition that 
inhabits us all. We're separated from God and broken by our sin. Have I received his forgiveness? Have I got to that place in my life where I recognize that because of my actions, because of the sin in my life, I have been separated from a holy God through that sin? And have I come to him in a place of faith to receive his forgiveness? Am I respecting Christ's authority over my life? This is where I think a lot of us stop. We get to the forgiveness part. We enjoy the new life. We enjoy the transformation. But we forget about respecting Christ's authority, remembering that he's the one who saved us. He's the one who has authority in our life now. He's the one who's working out his will and plan in this world, not us. That we have a responsibility to respond to him and to respect his authority for our lives. Am I responding to his commands for my life? Remember, we said he's left a number of them them right here in this book. They're contained here for us today to view at any time. And he will confirm in your heart that they, in fact, are true. Am I responding to the commands that he has set before me? Some of those commands involve going and making disciples. That's the most famous one. It's posted on our wall right out here. To go and make disciples, that's a command of Jesus. Are you following through on that? Are you following through on God's and Christ's command to be holy? Are you following through on Christ's command to be a good steward? There's a number of these commands that we have to follow through on, that we have to respond to. And finally, are you living a reverential life of fear of Christ? Have you forgotten what it is that he's done for you in your life? Have you forgotten that transformation that was wrought in your life? If not, you need to gain that back. You need to recognize Christ for who he is, that transformative power in our world who is saving sinners. Remember, this is a story of Jesus saves sinners. He healed a man's physical condition, which had a temporary effect. But when he healed that man's spiritual condition, it had an eternal effect. We need to recognize that and live in fear of God and reverence because of that activity that he's brought about. He's done the same thing for you and I, for each and every one of us. Make no mistake, what he's done for this man in the story is no different than what he's done for each one of us. We need to reverence God for that, and we need to give him glory for what it is that he's working out in each and every one of our lives. He's brought us all to a point now where we need to recognize that we need to be forgiven and that our lives need to be transformed. We need to give God the glory for that. He's the one who's making the transformation.